All right. Good, good, good. Fantastic. Well, here we are again. Um, seven days in the city of truth. This is part seven, which means our current study series is coming to an end. And I have to say, I kind of regret that this series is coming to an end. Uh, as I've said before, this may be my all-time favorite sermon uh, series title. Seven Days in the City of Truth sounds like a classic rock album title. Uh, I love that, so I hate for it to come to an end. Uh, but nevertheless, it is today. Uh, today is Palm Sunday on the church calendar. And so, let me say, happy Palm Sunday uh, to you. But this year, we as a church family are not exactly in sync with the church calendar. Uh, instead, we've been doing this study walking through uh, Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, uh, leading up to Good Friday uh, and leading up to ultimately um, to Easter. Uh, and we've been following along in the Gospel of Mark. And so that means that today, day seven of Holy Week for us, uh, we arrive at Saturday of Holy Week, what's called Holy Saturday. Um, and so this is a little bit awkward for me this morning. Um, it's awkward for a number of reasons. One, uh, I'm speaking to you uh, in a remote uh, scenario, and uh, I, hope, I hope we never get used to this, by the way. Um, but this is also awkward because I'm about to do an entire sermon on a theme that our biblical author actually says nothing about. <laughs> the Gospel of Mark passes directly from Good Friday to Easter Sunday morning with no mention of Holy Saturday uh, whatsoever. And yet, even here in this study in the Gospel of Mark, I'm about to do a sermon on Holy Saturday, something that Mark says nothing about. Since when, since when has the lack of biblical material ever stopped a good preacher who wanted, had something he wanted to say, right? So uh, that's what we're doing this morning. So, uh, so this morning, uh, Holy Saturday. Let me just kind of say a little bit of an aside just to kind of point out a direction that we're not going to go ultimately. Um, uh, Holy Saturday gets no mention in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, but it is significant that Holy Saturday does get a mention in the Apostles' Creed, right? In that section in the Apostles' Creed, those of you who grew up citing the creeds, uh, you know this. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that's Friday. He descended into hell, that's Saturday. And on the third day, rose from the grave, that's Sunday, right? So you, you do have this mention of Saturday in the Creed, uh, but no mention of it in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and I want to say that there actually was a rich tradition uh, about the meaning of Holy Saturday in the early church, which is still enjoyed um, by our brothers and sisters in the Eastern Church. Um, it's, a, it's a doctrine called the harrowing of hell. It's probably alluded to in the writings of both the Apostle Paul uh, and the Apostle Peter. Um, and that teaching really took shape uh, in the early church and, as I said, still exists among the Eastern, Eastern fathers. And I just want to say I love the doctrine. I love the teaching. We've talked about it here in the past. I wish we could revive and, and give that uh, teaching a, 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 a comeback uh, for the rest of us. So, but we're not going to go um, that direction today. I'm going to go in a little bit different direction uh, than that. And, because, and it's because I want to try to honor our... Um, like our prime directive that we started with in this, in this study series, and I've talked about it 
I, I think, each week, and that is that my goal throughout this series has been simply stated to stick with the story, right? We want to stick with, with the story. So today, I'm going to try to stick with the story, even though Mark doesn't actually write about Holy Saturday. Still, though, I think we can uh, imagine at least some of the real-time um, experience of those who went through Holy Saturday. And in addition to that, in just a moment, um, I'm going to show you a story that was actually given to us by Jesus that I think really brings all this to, uh, to life vividly for us. And so, okay, so with that, let's, let's dig in. Okay, so Saturday, right? Think about it. Jesus' body was placed in the tomb at sundown on Friday. That's, that marks the beginning of the Sabbath, marks the beginning. Sundown Friday would mark the beginning of the Sabbath there on Saturday. So, so all night, Friday night goes by. Friday night becomes slowly the early hours of Saturday morning. Jesus is in the tomb. The stone is rolled over the opening. Sun up, Saturday morning arrives. And all day, minute by minute of that Sabbath day, the shadows move slowly across the landscape. It's a Sabbath day in Jerusalem, in Israel. It's quiet. And besides that, on this Sabbath, Jesus is dead and in the tomb. Sabbath is always quiet. Everything is shut down. But this Sabbath adds a whole new layer to the quiet. Think about it. Jesus had performed miracles. He taught about the coming of the kingdom of God. He got our hopes up. He had us dreaming again, dreaming along with him, dreaming his dream. And now he's dead, killed by the very tyrants that we had hoped he would deliver us from. This quiet, the quiet of this Sabbath is a deafening quiet. This silence is shouting at us. This stillness has us completely shaken. You know how it is when you're expecting something to happen and it's not happening or it's not happening fast enough? That can be a really disconcerting feeling. When things don't go the way they're supposed to, the way that you expect, the way that you anticipate, and instead there's only like silence, stillness, nothing. And sometimes in those moments, we just wish that someone would fill that space with something. Anything is better than that kind of quiet, right? So you think about the people, the, the followers of Jesus, those around him, not just the 12, but the, but the larger group. Many of, many of them had been with him for three years, watching him, listening to him, capturing the promises that he would make. And now suddenly... There's no crowds anymore. There's no, there's no more buzz in the air surrounding Jesus. What's he up to? What's he doing? What's he going to say next? What's he going to you know, do? Who's he going to challenge next? You know, none of that. There's no, there's no heart pounding, adrenaline buzz anymore going on. Instead, it's the Sabbath. Everything's shut down. It's quiet. Just normal, noisy city. It's just silent. And all we can do is think. Jesus has been crucified, horribly, brutally murdered, openly humiliated. 
buried in a tomb with a, with a stone over its opening, the stone itself almost dramatically proclaiming in its own way, it's over, it's all over. And so, you know, what's left when you're in that situation? Disillusionment, fear, uncertainty, the empty, the quiet, the quiet. You know, sometimes, sometimes quiet can be soothing, right? Like when you've been had busy, active, lots, been around lots of noise and activity. Sometimes quiet can be soothing, but not this quiet. This, this is a disturbing kind of quiet. This is a quiet that is actually shouting at us, right? Like, like, like thunder. This is a silence that's shaking like an earthquake. So what do you say about Holy Saturday, right? Um, Jesus had made all these promises. He promised, he promised the coming of the kingdom of God. He promised, he, promised, uh, he promised we'd never be alone. He told us to seek first the kingdom of God, and now he's dead. How does this work? It's nothing but dark and still. There's nothing but questions and silence, and this is Holy Saturday. It's, it's like this day, well, it is. It's, it's the day of in-between. It's the day of waiting. It in itself is a day of lifelessness, emptiness, darkness. And, and importantly, Holy Saturday is about not running away from all of, all of this. But instead, and I'm going to suggest, Holy Saturday is not only about not running away from this, but instead, in a way, embracing it. Um, Holy Saturday is about actually allowing ourselves to be shaken by the shaking. It's ultimately about allowing ourselves to be startled by the thunder, allowing ourselves to be bothered by the lifelessness and still refusing to run away from it. Holy Saturday is about acknowledging that things are not, in fact, as they should be. Um, and this day is about resisting the urge to run away from the discomfort, from the emptiness, from the ugliness. It's about resisting the urge to manufacture answers that really aren't answers. It's about resisting the urge to paste over all this with like empty God talk, you know. Um, but instead, and here's really the kicker, Holy Saturday reminds us and proclaims to us that there's only one way to enter into resurrection life. There's only one way to enter into new creation life. And that is to pass through death. And remember, this is Mark's entire message about the death of Christ. Um, Mark's, if you want to say it this way, Mark's theology is entirely a theology of participation. Again and again, Mark reminds us that Jesus invited his followers, and again, not just the closest 12, but the larger, wider group, anyone who wants to follow me, must take up their cross and follow me. What does, what does that mean? Well, it means that the way of Jesus includes death. It includes Holy Saturday. Uh, and this is Mark's message in the way that he tells the story of 
leading of, of Good Friday and even leading up to Good Friday, it is a story of participation that Mark is telling. And the Apostle Paul, of course, picks up on this idea in many places, but he says, I'm crucified with Christ, right? So there's that idea. I die daily. There's other, other bits from Paul. And so the idea, what, what Mark got and it, what, in the story that he's telling and what Paul picked up in, in the way that he writes and talks about it is that, yes, Holy Saturday happened in 33 AD, but also Holy Saturday happens in the lives of the followers of Christ. Now, I think that it is helpful, I think, for us just to acknowledge um, that this kind of thinking is flat out foreign to us. Uh, not just foreign, but um, unappealing <laughs> to us, right? I mean, obviously, we, we want to live, not die. We want to go up, not down. We want to be in the light, not in the dark. What we want are answers, not more questions. We want solutions, not more awareness of our brokenness, right? I mean, really. Isn't it true, though, that, that when we're honest, in fact, we live most of our lives in one of these kind of in-between places? Like, we, isn't it true that we live most of our lives somewhere between a promise and its fulfillment? Somewhere between an expectation and its realization? We live most of our lives, in fact, I would say, in between a hope and a hope realized, in between a prayer and a prayer answered. <laughs> and here's the problem with that in-between space. I prefer results. <laughs> I prefer solutions. I, I, I like to see, when I make an investment of myself, time, money, energy, thought, whatever, when I make an investment, I like to see that investment pay off. I, I prefer the fruition of that investment. I don't like the in-between very much at all. When I have predetermined outcomes in mind, like I'm, I guess you could say, I, there's, there's, a, there's a level of frustration until that predetermined outcome materializes, right? And yet there's this in-between space. And that is precisely what Jesus' followers had. They had in mind an idea of where this whole thing with Jesus was going, right? Um, they thought they understood where things were headed. And it came from his own words, the kingdom of God is coming. And so they're thinking, okay, that's what this is about. The kingdom of God is going to come. And Rome will be overthrown. And Israel will be delivered and set free. And Israel will return to prominence. And Jesus will be in the center of the new reality running everything. And we will be closest to him at the center of all of that. I mean, that was their expectation. That's what Messiah means. The Messiah, the deliverer, has come. The king has arrived. And all that's left to do is to somehow pull off the overthrow of Rome and deliver Israel back to freedom and prominence. That's the expected outcome. And yet now, he's dead. He's in the tomb. And see, we do the same thing. We have certain outcomes in mind. And, and when those outcomes aren't realized, man, that's a, that's a tough spot for us to be. 
And when you arrive at that, what I'm calling that in-between space, when you arrive or, or I guess become aware that you're in one of those in-between spaces, what's your, what's your typical response? When you realize that the result you expected, the outcome you expected, the hope that you had hoped isn't panning out, and you get to a place where suddenly the expected outcome now seems impossible, or the desired end result just won't seem to emerge. What is your typical response in that kind of moment? Or what does that basket of responses look like in that kind of moment? Well, I can speak for myself at least. When I find myself in that spot, I'm looking for a fix. I'm looking for a solution. Um, and usually... That means that I'm looking for some kind of alternative method of getting to the end result. Or maybe my reaction is to change my desired end result entirely. Well, that's not going to happen, so let's go after this other desired end result, right? Like that dream didn't work out, so I'll toss out that dream and grab a hold of a new one. Let me say it like this. Usually our response to the in-between space, when we become aware that, oh, I'm in that in-between space, usually our response is that we react disruptively in, in some way. That is, we tend to take some kind of drastic, disruptive, sometimes even violent course of action, some kind of tearing, some kind of breaking, some kind of severing. And it seems like, as a, as a category analysis, it seems like that's the route that at least some of Jesus' closest followers took in the wake of Good Friday. They went back to their old lives. The fishermen went back to fishing, right? Um, well, that whole kingdom of God thing turns out to have been a pipe dream. Let's just forget about that. And at least we know we can go and eke out an existence back, you know, in the boats fishing. Um, but Holy Saturday actually teaches us something very, very different. Holy Saturday actually teaches us a different response altogether when we find ourselves in those all too common in between places. And rather than me try to offer you right now some distilled slogan to just kind of say it. Rather than do that, again, I want to I want to sort of honor our commitment to the story in this study series. And actually, I want to give you a story that Jesus himself told in the days before leading up to Holy Saturday. So we're going to shift to the gospel of Luke this morning. And Luke is telling his version of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem for what would be his final week. And during that journey, Luke reports to us a parable that Jesus told that is relevant to us today. This comes from Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 6. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and still I find none. Cut it down. 
Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, this is the gardener, Sir, leave it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. <laughs> Love that. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Okay, so we ha- that's it. That's the parable. Okay, so, so let's, let's think about this this morning and see what it has to offer our discussion. So in this story, we have a vineyard owner, and he expects, uh, he has a fig tree in his vineyard. And what does he expect from the fig tree? He expects figs, of course. He's not crazy. He's not demanding. That's not out of the, you know, that's not over the top for him to expect that. I mean, he's expecting the fig tree to do what fig trees do, and that is bear figs, right? But no figs. says for three years. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Uh, Fig tree produces no figs for three years. This fig tree, he says, is supposed to produce figs for me. It's not doing so. My expectations are unmet. My desired outcome is not being realized. So what's the reaction? What does the vineyard owner conclude? Cut it down. This tree is a waste. It's a waste of space. It's a waste of soil. It's taking up nutrients. It's taking up, you know, perhaps its foliage is blocking the sunlight from other plants and so on. It's not producing the outcomes that I expect and demand. And so cut it down. But then we have this other character in the story the gardener. This vineyard owner employs a gardener. Don't you just love gardeners? When the gardener shows up in the story and speaks, right, the, the wise people listen, right? We're better off listening when the gardener speaks. So the gardener has a different perspective than the vineyard owner. He says, let's give this tree one more season. And, and during this upcoming year, I'll dig around it, I'll fertilize it, okay, manure. Um, and let's see if it'll bear fruit after a year like that. If so, great. If not, then you can cut it down. And that's it. That's, that's the parable, which leaves us wondering, like, what about the tree? What happened? You know, how did it, how did it play out? Did it bear fruit? You know, and we don't, we don't know. And I want to say and suggest that apparently that's not precisely the point of the story. That we, I think we can trust Jesus as a teacher to give us what we need in the parable to understand the point of the parable. And with that framework in mind, so what, what do we conclude? I think we conclude that the point of the parable is what we have in the parable, which is two different responses to fruitlessness. Two different responses to um, unmet expectations, let's say. So how do we respond? What are the two responses? Well, the vineyard owner says, cut it down, chop it down. We're moving on. We need a new resource that will get us what we need. We need a new resource that will achieve our desired, expected, demanded outcome. I'm wasting my time and my resources on this fruitless investment. Now forget about it. I need a new plan, a new avenue, a new lever to pull. Cut that one down. But in the gardener, we have a very different response to this unmet expectation. Basically, the gardener says, hold on there, partner. Let's approach this a little bit differently. And the gardener essentially proposes two things, neither one of which are found in the response of the vineyard owner. 
The gardener proposes, in summary, I guess, time and nurturing. Let's give this tree one more year. And during that year, I will provide care, attention, nurturing to this tree. And let's see. Let's see what happens. And so one response to fruitlessness is this drastic, cutting, violent kind of response. The other response is very different in nature and in tone. The gardener's response, right, is patient and nurturing. And so what's what and who's who in this parable? What does this parable mean? Well, just like nearly all of Jesus' parables, um, this parable has been interpreted very differently by different generations of the church uh, throughout the history of the church. Um, but I want to offer you a particular take on this parable today. And I can assure you that this interpretation is exactly what Jesus meant, right? This is, this is what the parable meant. Okay, here you go. The vineyard owner, that's us. This is how we respond to unrealized outcomes. Cut it down. I'm wasting my time. Let's move on. The gardener, that's Jesus. Jesus here is the gardener. The gardener in this story embodies, don't you know, the way of Jesus. This is the style of Jesus. Think about it. There's, let's think about three elements in the gardener's approach. Patience and time. He says, Let's give this tree not, not a day, not a week, not a month, but let's give this barren, fruitless, lifeless, disappointing tree, <laughs> let's give it a full year. And, and, and during that time, I'm going to offer this tree intimate nurture. Notice, notice the gardener's proposal. This is remarkably detailed considering the sparsity of words used by Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig around it. I'm, I'm not much of a horticulturist, but maybe that's to retain moisture. Maybe that's so he can massage the soil in a certain way closest to the tree. I don't really know, but it's very detailed. Um, and I'm going to nurture this tree with fertilizer, <laughs> okay, manure. Now, when you think about manure... Um, I think most of us probably think, yuck, that's gross, right? Like we're going to get the oxen and the donkeys involved, you know, helping out this, this tree. Uh, that's kind of gross. But biologically speaking, uh, manure is actually full of life. There are thousands and thousands of little living organisms going on in just one handful of rich, rich soil, including manure. So in biological terms, as gross as it might be on one hand, in biological terms, manure is life to a plant, to a fig tree, manure is life. And so what's he saying? Yes, yes, I know that the tree is barren and appears lifeless, but I'm going to bring life to it. I'm going to work it in with my own hands. I'm going to mix it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knead in the life like a baker mixing the dough. There's a third element, really, in the gardener's response in this story. Um, notice how the gardener 
is thinking not just about what is, like the vineyard owner is thinking what has been, which is fruitlessness, and what is, which is fruitlessness. And yet the gardener is somehow incorporating a future, a future hope, a future vision, what sometimes, and this is from the Greek word, um, we call the telos, like the, the aim, like, the, like the, the, the what could be and should be kind of for this, for this tree. And so the gardener really is thinking beyond right now, beyond what is. He's thinking about what could be and what should be and indeed what will be eventually with this tree. Um, and again, this is characteristic with, with the personality, the ministry of Jesus. His, the vision of Jesus is always better than we can imagine given the right now. And I would say for the spirit-inspired vision within ourselves is always better than the right now. And so it's not spelled out in the story, but I just want you to imagine that gardener every day of that next full year, down on his knees at the base of that tree with his hands in the, with his hands in the, the manure, working it, kneading it, softening the soil, all around that tree, digging, tilling, mixing, and speaking gently to that tree. <laughs> you're going to make it. You're going you're gonna to make some great figs. I just know it, little tree. <laughs> I, can't waste, I can't wait to taste the sweetness of your figs. They're going to be the best ever. I just know it. Yeah, that's, that's what this gardener's like every day for the next full year. What about the tree? What do we make of the tree in this parable? Well, the tree is also Jesus. And we can do this kind of thing, by the way, because, because Trinity and all. <laughs> but think about this, a fruitless tree. Okay, think about this. And this is Jesus. Remember, he told this story while they're, they're journeying toward Jerusalem before Holy Week. Think about it. All, all of Israel expected a Messiah who would be a warring, violent, coercive, conquering deliverer of Israel. And by that standard, everybody, Jesus was, of course, fruitless. If that's the fruit you're looking for, Jesus is barren, right? According to that expectation, Jesus was a disappointment. He was a waste of time and resources. If, if hope is considered a resource, then then a warring hope invested in Jesus is a waste. Now, you may be thinking at this point, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about Holy Saturday. Wait a minute, Kenyon, how do we get from Holy Saturday to this parable that Jesus told about a fig tree well before the start of Holy Week? Well, there are actually three elements in this parable that connect directly to Good Friday and Holy Saturday. Remember in the parable, Jesus mentioned that the vineyard owner said, for three years, for three years, I've been watching this tree looking for fruit, and I have seen zero. Let me ask you a question. How many years was Jesus' public ministry? Three years, right. Um, the vineyard owner, he sees the barrenness of the tree, and his remark is to do what? Cut it down. Yeah. What was the response toward Jesus from the religious leaders and from the angry crowd when Jesus failed to meet their, their expectations. 
cut him down. Yeah, crucify him. Crucify him. He's, he's a waste. Um, there's, a third, there's a third element in this story that connects it directly to the crucifixion of Christ that we miss as English readers of, of the Bible. And it's a Greek word, aphiemi. The gardener in Jesus' parable in Luke 13, when gardener says to the vineyard owner, when he says, hold on, sir, leave it alone, that English construction, leave it alone, is actually translating the Greek word, aphiemi. Um, fast forward in Luke's story of Good Friday, it's Luke who gives us the words from Jesus, from, spoken from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And in that sentence, the word, English word forgive them translates this very same Greek word, aphiemi. It means something like be merciful or forbear or go gentle. And the guard, it's the exact same words that the gardener says to the vineyard owner, aphiemi, that Jesus says, well, it's a prayer constructed literally to the Father, but Jesus, no doubt, is speaking these words for our benefit. On the cross, Jesus' words ultimately directed toward us, aphiemi, are the same words that the gardener directs toward the vineyard owner. So, so, I mean, just think about it like this. Anyone who had been with Jesus during that walk to Jerusalem and would have heard Jesus tell that parable, and then just a few days later, if that same person had seen and heard the events of Good Friday, imagine that. They would have been with him for three years of public ministry. The words cut it down now morph into the words of crucify him. And then there's that word again, aphiemi. Jesus has now spoken this word twice in just the span of a few days. And this time, it's a word of mercy spoken by Jesus for our benefit. And so, what about us? What, what do we do with the dark places in our own lives? What do we do in those in-between places? How do we respond to the barren places, the fruitless places, the lifelessness? When we realize that things aren't, in fact, turning out like we'd hoped, like we dreamed about. See, the gardener, he has a way for just this kind of thing. And what this gardener Jesus does is he offers us patience. He offers us intimate nurture, kneading in the life into our hearts, into our souls, into our imagination. And he offers us a vision of what could be, of what should be. So I want to ask you here just briefly, in your world, where are those in-between spaces? The places where the hopes that you've hoped for aren't coming to fruition. Where there seems to be only more questions and fewer and fewer answers. Where the expectations that you've had aren't being realized. How do we respond to our awareness of those places? You're right, like that's where we're living. How do we respond? And what we see in 
Holy Saturday, and again, as beautifully portrayed in this story of the fig tree, is that there's more than one way to respond. We can, we can take that disruptive route. And I think you can see what you extrapolate out from that. When we choose to take that disruptive route, what we, what we leave behind us is a, a trail of severing. And yet, what we see in the gardener in the fig tree is this alternative approach that involves patience, that involves bringing the life of God slowly over time and involves continuing to hope this kind of um, um, audacious hope. As Paul would say later, hoping against hope. And hope is different than optimism. Optimism can be shallow and circumstantial or circumstance-rooted. But hope, you can argue that real hope is only real hope when there's no real reason to hope. <laughs> That's the irony, I think, built in to hope itself. And so I just, I just want, there's really two layers of this. And I know that we all have these places, these areas of our lives. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a work-related issue where expectations don't pan out. Maybe it's, maybe it's a marriage. Um, maybe, maybe issues with parenting and children. Um, one is... This is the way of Jesus. This is the personality of Christ. This is what he is up to, even in the midst of yours and my dark places in between spaces. Um, he is near. I, I want you to see Jesus the gardener on his knees with his hands, with his hands in the, in the manure of our lives, bringing life to our barrenness, to our lifelessness, and continually speaking words of healing, words of life. And, and then the second layer that I would propose for your meditation uh, is that we become like what we worship, right? And so I think as we fully savor and meditate on this aspect of the character of Christ and what God is actually like, I think it's reasonable to expect that, that this kind of mode, this kind of way, of responding to the dark places, whether our own or the dark places of others, would take root in us and that eventually we would also embody the way of Christ in the lives of others. And so, the virus. Certainly, this is a difficult time for all of us. The suffering, the fear, the uncertainty, to be sure, in this circumstance, 
our expectations are not being realized. <laughs> I mean, it's obvious. This is not how things are supposed to go. This is not what spring of 2020 was supposed to be, right? So the question is, how do we respond? Well, let me be the first to say that I feel like right now, I feel all of the typical impulses found in the in-between places. I feel those impulses rising up inside of me, and I think we all do. I, I want a quick solution. I want answers. I demand to know why. I demand to know when it's going to end. Um, and I think, I think we want to blame. We want to blame. We want to blame someone, something. We want to blame certain leaders. We want to blame a certain culture. We want to blame certain groups of people, irresponsible groups of people, whatever, on and on and on. All of this, I think, is part and parcel of those impulses that we feel when we find ourselves in a dark place, in a barren place, in a lifeless place, in this unresolved place, in the in-between places. I think all of those kinds of impulses fall in that category of the disruptive kinds of responses. Is there an alternative perspective? Is there an alternative response? And the answer is yes. And it's the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus toward us and the way of Jesus within us embodied by us ultimately in a situation like this. And it's the way of patience and gentleness. It's the way of intimate nurture bringing life to the lifeless barren places and it's the way of telos thinking the scripture says for the joy set before him he endured the cross scorning its shame that's telos that's that idea there's only one way into new life and that's passing through death not running from it not avoiding it but passing through it. And Holy Saturday is this embodied template for how we respond when we find ourselves in the dark, in the silence, in the yuck. And I just want you to know that Jesus right now has his hands his gentle, tender hands in our manure, bringing life, bringing healing, speaking words of hope, speaking words of renewal and new life. We call this Holy Saturday in reflection upon it, right? It's like Good Friday. The reason we call Good Friday good is because when we reflect back on Good Friday, we look through Easter. It's the same for Holy Saturday. We, we refer to Holy Saturday as holy in reflection because we look back at this particular Saturday and we're looking through resurrection. The way to resurrection is through death. And Holy Saturday forever and ever reminds us of that. So as we close this morning,
um, I want to ask you to maybe, maybe courageously acknowledge, identify the places in your life where expectations aren't turning out like you'd planned, like you'd hoped. We all share the one with this virus. But what about in your particular story, those specific areas? And I, and I ask you to do it like I ask you that way because I think for most of us, again, we have that tendency to ignore, to run away from, to cut down, to cut out, to cut off, to sever, to disrupt, and maybe as a means of coping, you know. Um, but I want to ask you right now to do something different than that and go there. Um, allow yourself to be disquieted by the quiet, you know. Allow yourself to be, to be not okay by the reality that some things in my life are just not okay. And just know that Jesus the gardener is right there on his knees with his hands in the manure bringing life. Speaking a word of hope. A word of healing. Amen. Ah, Lord, we thank you so much for your presence here.